I'd like to say, first of all, what a privilege it is and an honor it is that you've invited me here to speak to you this weekend concerning the subject of angels. So tell you that I am not an authority on this subject. As we go through this weekend, I think you'll find that we will ask more questions than we will answer. But that's probably the nature of any good study in the scriptures. As we go into the study of angels, one of the first things that we've got to answer is what is an angel? I want you to think about the word angel for a minute. In our vernacular, the word angel can refer to a spiritual being. The world has this vision of angels, you know, creatures with wings that kind of look like, a, look have a feminine look to them that fly around, and sometimes you fly, find them on little uh, precious memory statues, you know. In our culture, unfortunately, the word, word angel sometimes refers to something bad, you know, uh, in, uh, in, a, in a sinful way. And, and then yet again, I think about angel, and I think about, you know, uh, my little daughter when she was little, or my wife, or when Emily came, when I saw Emily tonight, Emily Barris, just looked like an angel had driven down from Oklahoma City, you know. So we think about the word angel, it has a lot of different meanings to us in our culture. I want to think about angels throughout this weekend from the perspective of the scriptures and the scriptures only. As you look into the Bible, the Bible uses the word angel in a couple of different ways that we'll talk about in a moment, but the world is filled with ideas about what angels are. People have all this notion of what an angel does and what an angel, the place of an angel in God's creation. And uh, you know, there are a lot of writings about angels. You can get one book after the other that tells you this is what angels do. And it's all this information. But what we're going to do, we're going to study the scriptures and we're going to accept what the scriptures say unapologetically. We'll accept what the scriptures say about angels. And um, if you want to study other sources, feel free to. But the authority from God comes from the scriptures. And that's where we will focus our study, what the scriptures have to say about angels. If you go to the Bible, you'll find that there are basically two words used that are translated into our one word, English. In Hebrew, the word malach is the word. That word is translated into angel in the Old Testament. In the Greek language, the word angelos is the word that's used, and that word is translated into our word, and our word is a derivative of that word, angel. Both of those words mean, in their original languages, basically the same thing, a messenger. You will find both of these words used in the Old Testament and the New Testament in reference to a lot of things other than spiritual beings. For example, King David referred to the messenger that came to tell him that Saul had been put to death as an angel. He called him a messenger. Sometimes other messengers in the Old Testament where this word Moloch was used to describe them, they were not spiritual beings. They were messengers in the strictest sense. What we're going to focus on are angels in terms of spiritual beings. In the New Testament, the word angel is used in a lot of different ways. For example, the Apostle Paul referred to himself as an angel. And he, what he meant was, when he was talking about it in context, he was talking about the fact that he was a messenger to those people. The very word evangelist is a compound word of two Greek words, uve, which is good, and angel, or angelos, which is angel, good messenger. You talk about a man who holds the position of evangelist throughout the kingdom of God, what you're literally saying is he's a good angel, a good messenger. The word gospel, the original Greek word for the word gospel is good message or, or good angel. Very similar to the word evangelist. So the word angel is used a lot in the scriptures, and it's not always in reference to spiritual beings. But for the purpose of our study, we're going to look at these words when they're used describing spiritual beings. And it's important to understand the context. Look at the context of what's being talked about to derive whether or not we're talking about just some messenger or where we're talking about a spiritual heavenly being. With that being said, we need to ask a couple of questions. Where did angels come from? I turn your attention to the book of Psalms, chapter 148, beginning in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all ye stars of light. Praise Him ye heavens of heavens and ye waters above the heavens. Let them Praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Notice the list of things that he describes. The sun, the moon, the heavens, the stars of light. 
All of these things, and within these things, he lists a couple of important things. He lists angels and hosts. These are describing hosts of spiritual beings or angelic beings. And as he describes them, he says, let them praise him because he commanded and they were created. Just as certainly as God created you, just as certainly as God created the lumber or the tree that these pews were made out of, just as certainly as God created everything else, he created angels. Angels are created beings. This is important to understand. It'll relate to the subject of Jesus Christ as we go on. So he commanded and they were created. Colossians, the first chapter, verse 16. <clears throat> Pardon me. For by him all things were created. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible. For the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, towards the end of the lesson, we will show that when he talks about principalities, powers, thrones, rulers, he's ta- dominions, he's talking about angels. So please accept that for just the moment that that's describing angels. And as we get into the message, we'll describe that and we'll show that. But I want you to notice what he says about these invisible things. He says they were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ created the angels. They were created through him. It was by God through Christ for him. It says, what are angels for? That verse answers it very simply. They were created for him. They were created to do the purpose and bidding of Jesus Christ. I want to say something before we get very deep into our discussion through the weekend. People get really exercised about the subject of angels. The world really gets interested in it, and you find a lot of theories, and people get all real wrapped up in the subject of angels, and it's very intriguing, and it's an interesting subject. It's not even half as important or interesting as the subject of Jesus Christ, our Savior. This weekend, I believe that our study of angels will serve to accomplish one thing. It will glorify Christ. That If, we, if it doesn't do that, it's not worth studying. So as we study the subject of angels, never forget this verse. Angels were created through him and for him. And especially, I believe, Saturday, uh, Saturday afternoon or maybe Saturday night, when we talk about other aspects of angels, this verse will be very important. That angels were created through him and for him. Romans 8, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about all kinds of forces out there that we might view as having enough power to turn us from the Lord. And he says none of them can. None of them can turn us or separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And he describes these things as created things. So here are angels as created beings. So we think about angels, think of them in terms of a creation of God. God, just as certainly as he spoke the stars into existence, he also created angels. Angels are spirit beings. Somebody says, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a spirit being? Well, let's contrast it for just a moment. You and I are fleshly beings. We're carnal in nature. When this fleshly body dies, we die. Whatever there is with us is bound to this flesh. The book of James describes that when the spirit, that death is when the, the soul is separated from the body, that that's death. It is bound to the physical reactions of this flesh. When the heart stops beating, the flesh dies, man is separated. We're carnal in nature. And we'll think about that as we go. Watch what he says in the book of Luke, chapter 20, verse 36. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now the scribes and Pharisees had asked Christ a question about this uh, marriage, and if they would be married in the world to come. And Christ was correcting him, saying, no, there'll be no marriage in the world to come. But he says, rather, nor can they die anymore, but they will be equal to the angels. He's talking about the resurrected righteous. Talking about you and I. When we resurrect to be with God forever in eternity, he's describing the nature of our being. And as he describes the nature of our being, he says that we will be equal to the angels and are the sons of God. Why and how? What 
causes us to be like the angels? What causes us to be the sons of God? Being sons of the resurrection. The nature of what happens to you and I at our resurrection is what gives us our characteristic that makes us similar to angels. So in order to understand really what an angel is, we need to understand what you and I will be like in the resurrection. If I can know what I'm like in the resurrection, then I can say, well, that's what an angel is. Because you and I will be equal to the angels in that we will be sons of the resurrection or being um, resurrected, being sons of the resurrection. Whatever happens to us in resurrection is what makes us like angels. I'm not like an angel now. But when I resurrect from the grave, I'll be like an angel. So we're going to take just a minute and briefly remind ourselves of what happens at the resurrection of man. First Thessalonians 4. We'll just lift some quotes from that long text, verse 13 through 18. He's talking about when Jesus comes back, brings the spirits of God's with him, the spirits of the righteous with him. <coughs> Pardon me. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So here are the dead bodies in the ground. The spirits have gone to be with God. And now he will return. And when he returns, he'll bring the spirits of them who sleep with him. So there's the dead fleshly body. And here comes Christ and the spirits are with him. You see that? They're separated. Okay? Notice what else he says in this text. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he begins to describe this series of events that will happen at the last day. Here are the dead in the graves. They're dead. They're, they're dust. They're rotted corpses. Here comes Christ bringing the spirits of the righteous with him. Some point shortly after that, the dead in Christ will rise. Now, how's that going to happen? Let's look at Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is a promise. The promise is, if Christ dwells in us, this mortal body will be given life. Now, right now, we're all in a state of decay and dying. Some of us are further along than others. <laughs> but we're dying. This mortal body is dying. But the spirit of Christ that we've been given will someday quicken or make alive our mortal bodies. Watch that. Will give life to your mortal bodies, fleshly bodies. This body will vacate the grave. I preached this one time, was talking about the resurrection. Somebody said after church, said, you mean that we're actually going to come out of the grave? Yes. That's the heart and soul of Christianity. That the graves will open and we're going to come out of them. Whatever is put in there is coming out. I've heard people stand at the coffin before and say before the body that this really isn't our friend. And I understand what they mean. But that's not really true either. This really is my friend. Someday this body that lays before us will come out of the ground. Though it be in a million pieces and rotted beyond recognition, God will bring it forth. He promised he would. The spirit of Christ that dwells in our mortal bodies will give it life. So here comes the spirits with Christ. Here's the dead bodies. They're going to be resurrected, made alive again. Somebody says, how can that possibly be? You know, the folks at Corinth had the same question. They were saying, the body's rotted. It's dead. How can this possibly be? And it challenged their faith. This teaching that bodies could actually come out of the grave challenged their faith. And so the apostle taught them. He said, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. So also as the resurrection of the dead is sown in natural bodies, raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. The apostle Paul basically said, look at nature. Isn't nature filled with all different examples of flesh? There's a flesh of fish and one of the birds. and You don't have to live very long to recognize that an apple is different than a peach. Of course there are differences. And there are differences between celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. So don't be surprised that God can't create different kinds of bodies. He already has. Just look around you. It's not a real stretch for you and I to think that God is able to create different kinds of beings. Paul says there's one that you don't know about. There's the natural body. That's what we are. There's also a spiritual body. 
a different kind of body that comes out of the grave. Now we're going to get close to what an angel is, <clears throat> a spiritual being. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 1 through 4, I think describes this in a, in a beautiful way. I just love this passage. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we're going to stop right there. He makes his first analogy. He says that we're like a, a, a tent and a building. He said, on the one hand, this earthly house that we have, this tent, this flesh, it's just a tent. But we have, he says, a building from God, a house, oikodome, which is the Greek word for a, a large edifice building, a, a building that has a, a great pinnacle to it, a castle. You and I right now live in this old tent, just an old tent. But we have from God a building made without hands that's a great castle, if you will, an oikodome, a great rising massive mansion. That's what we have awaiting us. Right now, this flesh is a tent. So that's the analogy. He says, we're one kind of being now, but we'll be another kind of being later. Then he makes a second analogy. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed. He says, now we're going to compare it to clothing. Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is habitation is where you live. He says, we're going to be clothed with a new living place. So he kind of connects the two analogies. Here's this old tent. Here's this great big house. Now we, the essence of who we are, are going to be clothed. We're going to live in this clothing that... Now we live in this tent, but we're going to live in this mansion, you see, this clothing. It says, for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So we have one kind of clothing, which is a habitation from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Oh, we don't want to do that. <laughs> Nobody wants to be found naked. Everybody wants to have clothes on. For we who are in this tent... Grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Let's put it together. Right now, I am clothed in this body. This body is the clothing for my soul and spirit. Someday, though I don't want it, I will become unclothed. We don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to be found naked, but guess what? That's death, and we don't have a choice. Someday, we will be found naked. But at the resurrection, we're going to get new garments. And that new garment is, to a, is a castle to a tent, the spiritual body to the fleshly body. That's what you and I will be like in our resurrection. All right. So let's put all these verses together. You and I, earthly man, we have a fleshly body in which is housed the soul and spirit. The soul and spirit are subject to the will of the flesh. We try to train the flesh, but ultimately the soul and the spirit are subject to the will of flesh. When we resurrect, the risen man will be a spiritual body. This is important. Not just a spirit, not just a soul, a spiritual body in which the spirit and soul is clothed. Whatever the spirit and soul is clothed in now is called clothing, and this clothing will be replaced with better clothing. That's the spiritual body. Fleshly body, spiritual body. Natural body, spiritual body. That's the difference that he's describing. We'll be further clothed. Risen man will be a spiritual body in which is housed the spirit and soul. <laughs> Somebody says, well, really, what is that? Well, really, I, we don't know. But we'll give you, we'll, we'll uh, if you will, we'll um, lay some ideas out there for a moment. Right now, if this flesh decides to get in the truck and drive home, the spirit and soul are going with it. Unless I die. As long as the spirit and soul are housed in this flesh, they're going to go where the flesh wants to go. And if the flesh decides to do something not right, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, the battle will ensue, but the flesh ultimately is in control. That's what we're doing in life, is trying to teach the flesh to live spiritually. As Apostle Paul said, that battle, sometimes we lose that battle. But that's the battle we fight. The soul and the spirit are subject to the will of the flesh. I believe it's the opposite in our resurrection. 
the spiritual body will be subject to the will of the soul and spirit. Think about angels and examples of angels that we'll look at in just a moment. Think about the resurrection of Christ, who we will be like. When Christ resurrected from the grave, he was able to disguise himself so that they couldn't recognize him. And he had the powers to do that at other times too. But this was very unique to his resurrection. He was no longer burdened by the pains of death. Though he still bore the scars of his death, it didn't seem to slow him down. The spirit and soul were willing to live. Therefore, the spiritual body lived. He wanted to just walk and appear into a room without opening the door where the apostles were. He did. He disguised himself on the road to Emmaus. He did. He ate. The resurrected Savior ate with those people when they got to Emmaus. He did. He wanted to disappear. He did. Spiritual being in the scripture seems to be subject to the will of the spirit and soul. The opposite of the way it is now. Now, in order to sort of uh, illustrate that further, I'd like to think about here is risen man, spiritual body in which is housed a spirit and soul. Well, that's what we will be like the angels. Remember, they're equal to the angels being the, being the sons of the resurrection. That's what angels are. Angels are spiritual beings in which is contained a spirit and soul. That's what we are in our resurrection. We're said to be like the angels. That's what an angel is. Somebody says, what's an angel? An angel is a spiritual being. A spiritual body in which is housed a spirit. Okay. So if I can understand some of the things about angels, looking in the Old Testament other places, some of the things they can and can't do and some of their limitations, some of the realities about angels, then maybe I can understand more about my resurrection. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into the Old Testament and we'll look at some examples of angels. And in doing this, we'll come to a better understanding of what it means to be a spiritual being. A spiritual body. 2 Kings, the 6th chapter, verse 14. Elisha was a man of God that dwelt in the northern part of Israel. And at this time in his life, the country of Syria had been attacking Israel. And the king of Syria was not having any, any success. He would attack and he would get over there and they were ready for him. And he didn't know why. And what's wrong? And he asked his counselors, what's, why can't I go over there and conquer these people? And his counselor said, well, here's the deal. There's a guy over there by the name of Elisha who knows even the private things you say in your bedroom. And that, that's literally what the scriptures say about him. This man knows all these things. And so he knows when you're going to attack and where you're going to attack. So the king of Syria said, send the CIA. We're taking him out, <laughs> basically. Go get him. Shut him down because he's stopping my plans. So the king of Syria sends the army. And here goes the army. Now, Elisha was at a place where the prophets lived. And here he is staying there. Well, one morning they get up. And I believe we pick up here in the uh, text. 2 Kings, the 6th chapter, beginning verse 14. Elisha's, one of his right-hand men, go outside to see what's going on. It says here, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose <coughs> early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. So a servant said to them, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He tells Elisha, Oh, we're going to be overwhelmed by this great army that surrounds our city. What shall we do? So he answered and said, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who were with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Here was Elisha. Here was the enemies of God surrounding, and this man was terrified. He couldn't see. And Elisha's standing there going, Hey, no, thank you. <laughs> the man of God is, what are we going to do? He's all stressed out. And Elisha said, don't worry. There's more on our side than there is on his side. And so Elisha prayed, said, open this man's eyes so he can see. Those fleshly eyes can't see spirit beings. At least in this case, these spirit beings were hidden to his eyes. Well, that would be one thing I could draw a conclusion, that spiritual beings, spiritual bodies can hide themselves. They can put themselves in a situation like Christ did, like these chariots of fire did, these angelic spiritual hosts that were there, hid themselves. Not until Elisha prayed, this man's vision was open and he saw. 
And it says, Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know what happened? These chariots of fire and these horses, these spiritual beings struck the army of Syria with blindness. And so Elisha and his people took the Syrian army, led them into Samaria, uh, into uh, Ephraim, fed them, took care of them, sent them on their way in peace. And the king of Assyria, until the next king come up, the king of Syria decided never to attack the northern country of Israel again. Now, when he died, Ben-Hadad did attack later. But this good deed turned another good deed, you see. But the point is, is that these spiritual beings were hidden to the man of God. He couldn't see them. Elisha could. Elisha prayed the man's eyes were open. I don't know. But it could be that if our eyes were open tonight, we may see hosts of angels around us. Don't know. Our eyes can't see it. We don't know what God may have around us protecting us. We just don't know. Have faith that God protects us, however he does it, however God works his providence, however God hedges our way, however God keeps us from being tempted above that we are able, however he fulfills the promises that he has promised to us, we know not. But the, our eyes of faith can tell us that he does do it. Maybe that's how he does it. But this is one thing we can learn about spiritual beings. Spiritual beings can hide themselves and disguise themselves so that they cannot be seen by the eyes of men. Another story, Manoah. The uh, situation is, is that Manoah and his wife, people living in Israel, and uh, this angel appeared to his wife. Manoah was gone out in the field. Angel appeared to Manoah's wife and said, you're going to have a child about this time next year. So don't be drinking any wine. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do all these things because you're going to have a baby. And before Manoah got back, this, this angel of the Lord left. Now, Manoah's wife didn't know that it was an angel. She thought it was just a man of God, maybe a prophet or something. Well, Manoah got back and she said, hey, we had a visit from a man of God. And he said, I'm going to have a baby and this and this and that. And Manoah said, why didn't you make him stay? I want to talk to him. So they waited and maybe the, man, maybe the angel would come. Well, the angel came back and saw Manoah's wife again. And Manoah's wife said, well, stay, my husband wants to speak with you. And that's where we pick up here in verse uh, 15 of chapter 13 in Judges. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord. Now, he doesn't know he's an angel. At this point, he thinks he's a man. Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass we may honor you? The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock of the Lord, to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife... Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. So here Manoah thinks he's talking to a prophet or maybe some great man of God. And he's talking to this, this what he thinks is a prophet about this child that's going to be going. He says, well, here, let me offer sacrifice and you join in with us. And they say, I can't, I can't eat it. And Manoah says, well, when, when we have the baby, at least tell us your name so we can honor you. So we can say, you know, the prophet so-and-so said this and it came to pass. The angel of the Lord said, why do you want to know my name, seeing it is too wonderful for you? We'll talk about that here in just a few moments in greater detail. Very interesting statement. Why do you want to know my name? We'll talk about this some, I believe, Saturday night also. Interesting. The angel said, why do you want to know my name, seeing that it is too wonderful for you? So Manoah offers a sacrifice, and here comes the fire and the smoke. And about that time, this man that they thought was a man just turns into a whiff of smoke and, and goes away. Then Manoah knew that they had been, been speaking to uh, the angel of the Lord. Such is the nature of a spiritual body. This spiritual body appeared very much like a man. Manoah didn't know, thought it was just a man. Then instantly before their eyes, he turned into smoke. And then into flame or flame into smoke and then just disappeared. That's the nature of this spiritual being, this spiritual body. It was under control to the, to the being within. You know, as you look at the scriptures, actually there are a lot of attributes that angels can have. Typically we get this idea that angels are sort of feminine beings with wings and very 
uh, very Caucasian in nature. Usually that's kind of what people draw. But the truth is the scriptures describe angels as being real varied in their appearance. For example, angels can have wings. Isaiah, the sixth chapter, verse two, these beings had six wings. Daniel, the ninth chapter, verse 21, the man Gabriel, which was an angel, being caused to fly swiftly. Here in this case, this angel had wings to fly swiftly. And he had to fly from this place to that place. And there's a lot of things you could say about this angel being uh, able to be limited by the laws of space and time. Here he was here. He had to hurry up and fly there. So he'd get there before the evening prayer and all the things that are said about that. And this angel Gabriel had to fly swiftly to get there on time. There's all kinds of things you can draw conclusions from the nature of these angels. These angels had wings, yet Manoah's angel, angel didn't have wings. Jacob's angel didn't have wings. The angels that appeared to Lot and Abraham did not have wings. So angels can have wings. Some of them don't have wings. Angels have eyes. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 describes Jesus Christ as having been seen by the angels. The angels have seen him. Now does that mean angels have physical eyes like you and I? No, they're not physical beings. They're spiritual beings. But they have some capability to perceive sight. Maybe some angels don't. Some angels have, are filled with eyes. The scriptures describe some of them for us. Angels are, so far as I have found, are always in the masculine gender in the scriptures. An example is Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And you read all the various examples through the scriptures. I've not found one where it's a feminine gender. I don't know if that means anything. It's just an observation that the world has wrong. The world generally paints angels out to be feminine in nature. And the truth is they are not. Every example I find in the scriptures, they're masculine and gender. And usually, pretty strong. Usually they're like swords. And think about the angel that appeared to uh, Balaam. I mean, this, this thing was big. Stood in the way and had his sword drawn and blocked the path before the donkey. I mean, think about that story. I mean, usually angels are, are, are pretty fierce warrior-looking creatures to the people that see them when they appear like an angel. Somebody says, why, do you, why is that? I, mean, I thought an angel was an angel was an angel. Why would it be so absurd for you and I to think that God would create angels to look different from one another? Think about creation. How many birds are there? How many birds have different kinds of wings? How many animals don't have wings? Think about God's physical creation and how varied it is from the single cell animal all the way up to the most complex human being and from the most basic flora in the ocean to the most beautiful plant life on earth. God's creation in the physical realm is a wondrous variety of diversity. Why would it be so hard for us to think that angels are any different than that? In fact, when you read the scriptures and read various examples of angels, they are like that. There's all kinds of angels. Some have the face of a lion and a lamb and some look just like me and you, more or less. Some change their appearances, we've seen. The Bible describes some angels as having hands, Genesis 19, verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot back into the house, the story tells us. Psalms 91, 12, talking about the angels that would bear Jesus up lest he dashed his foot against the stone. He said, their hands they shall bear you up. Now remember, we're going to accept what the scriptures say about this subject unapologetically. If the scriptures say they have hands, they have hands. If the scriptures say they have feet, if the scripture says they have a voice, then we're going to believe they have a voice. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, with the voice of an archangel, Acts 12 and 8, then the angel said to him, talking to Peter, gird yourself. One occasion an angel spoke and they thought it was thunder. Different occasions, angels speak different ways. Angels can have a voice. Angels have varying levels of strength. Watch what the revelator says in Revelations 5 and verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel. Think about the angel that David saw reaping after he numbered the people. It was coming through the country reaping and killing and nobody could stop it. And it stood over the floor of Onan, the threshing floor of Onan. Nobody could resist this angel as it reaped across Israel because of the wickedness of David and numbering the people. Now think of the angel that wrestled with Jacob all night and it came to more or less a draw. Different strengths, different abilities to resist. Angels can have differing strengths in in their abilities. The scriptures bear that out. This angel that he saw in Revelations, he describes as a strong angel. 
Again, why would it be so unusual for us to think that angels have the most intricate differences when you think about the intricate abilities and differences of physical man and spiritual beings are greater? Remember, the spiritual dwelling place is a great mansion. This flesh is just an old tent. Think about how varied and unique and special this flesh is in its creation. How much greater is the creation of a spiritual body, a spiritual being? That's not a stretch for us to, to draw that and see that in the teachings of the Scriptures. Angels can have feet. Genesis 18, verse 4, and wash your feet. Talking about Abraham and Lot. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, above it stood seraphim. With two he covered his feet. These seraphim had feet. Angels can have languages, 1 Corinthians 13 and 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. I want you to think about that for a second. The point the Apostle Paul was making, imagine if I could speak a lot of languages. I've got to tell you a funny story. This co-worker of mine, he, uh, he left our company about a year ago and went to work for Bank of America as a... Uh, project manager, construction project manager. And he's a real funny guy, has a real dry sense of humor, very Red Allen kind of sense of humor. And uh, occasionally emails us. Today he sent me and my coworker an email in German. <laughs> he's not German. He just sent us an email in German. And so we're all gathered around the computer. <laughs> you know, what's going on with this? And so I found this website called, uh, I forgot the name of it, but it translates. And I had fun with that for at least an hour. <laughs> Sending all my friends and my family these messages in Chinese and German and French and all these different languages. How cool was that? And I read his message and it basically meant nothing. <laughs> you got what you guys doing for the holidays is what he asked. You know, why did that? He's just a really unusual guy. How cool would it be to be able to speak every language on this earth? I was feeling pretty cool. When I found the words, I love you, in traditional Chinese and emailed them to my wife. And then the air was let out of my balloon when she emailed back with an answer that I couldn't read. <laughs> so I hurried up and copied and pasted it into the website and tried to figure out what it was and it didn't work. So anyway, how cool would it be to speak different languages of men? Some of you probably are bilingual. That's really special skill. My wife speaks three languages, almost four. She speaks English better than I do. That's really a, a pretty special thing. How cool would it be to also speak the language of angels? And there's not just one. The tongues of men and of angels. God created angels with different languages. I don't know why. Again, I'll accept what the scriptures say. He said that he did, he did. How cool would that be? It doesn't mean a thing if you don't have love. That's what it means. That's the thrust of that verse. Though I speak the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, it profits me nothing. The love we have in Christ Jesus is manifold, greater, and more important than any kind of study or great blessing we could learn from a study of the angels. But it is pretty cool to know that angels have languages. I don't know why, but they do. Angels have food. Now, that's interesting. Psalms chapter 78, verse 24, 25. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. This is a reference back to the manna that they ate uh, as they exited out of Egypt. Somebody says, well, now I thought that manna was food for those people. It was. Now the psalmist refers back to it, and he describes it as angels' food. I'm not going to try to explain that away. It says what it says. Manna is angels' food. It's not angels' food cake. <laughs> it's angels' food. Whatever else it is, it is angel's food. And in that occasion, man ate angel's food. He sent them food to the full. And before we get all, well, pretend this is a Bible. <laughs> before we start criticizing them for not wanting that angel's food that he sent to them, we have the bread of life in the Bible. It's been given to us, the very bread of life. So we need to be very careful about our criticism of those who would not eat angels' food. If we don't eat the word of God daily and take it like our necessary food, as David called it. He sent them angels' food. They ate.
this food to the full. How interesting. God indeed has created angels with a manifold of nature, but they are all spiritual beings, whether it's feet, language, food, wings, hands, eyes, whatever, voice, all of these are just different aspects of the things that angels can have in their spiritual being. Another thing we want to think about for a moment, how many angels are there? Well, I could just close this point real quick and say you can't count them. Okay, what does that mean? I want you to notice this verse, Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You know what he says? You've joined or you've become a part of a pretty important organization. You've become a part. You have come to Mount Zion. That's what you came to when you come to the kingdom of God. <clears throat> you and I have come to Mount Zion. You and I have come to the city of the living God when we come to the kingdom of God. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the old physical Jerusalem, but you and I have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You and I have come to an innumerable company of angels. You know what you did when you obeyed the gospel and become a member of the body of Christ? When you came to be in the kingdom of God, you put your arm around an innumerable company of angels and said, you and I are in the same exclusive organization. We're a member of an innumerable company of angels. We're part of the greater kingdom of God, that kingdom that the angels are in. And as he describes this general assembly and church of the firstborn, as he describes this just men, this great body of Christ, as he describes it, he describes it as being a group that is an innumerable company of angels. You can't count them. But you know, that's a term that you and I just can't really get our hands around. What does that mean, innumerable? But the scriptures have some other verses that describe at least a part of the angels and gives us a count. Daniel, the seventh chapter. Sunday night, Lord willing, we will talk about a view into the throne of God. And there are a couple of occasions where man has been allowed to see into that blessed scene, the throne of God. And as man has been allowed to view that scene without fail, it is always described as having a great host of angels around the throne. That's not all of them. That's just the ones that attend to the throne of God. Imagine a great king in an ancient culture. And you walk into the courtroom of the king, and there would be the soldiers lining up. There would be the various peoples here and here, and the jester and all the advisors. And, and there would be maybe great soldiers around the, the throne of this king. And, other, and all of these people gathered around this throne. That's what these writers that describe the throne are describing what they see. <clears throat> all the people gathered around the throne. Now they see into the throne of God. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This is the scene of the throne of God. And as he describes this scene, he describes those that minister to him and those who stand before him. There are two groups of angels here. Some are there just to minister. Maybe they go get him a drink of water, whatever, in a spiritual sense it is that they do. They're there to minister to his beck and call. There are others there that stand before him. I view these as a more or less like an honor guard. Those who represent the majesty of the throne by simply standing there. They stand before the throne. And he gives us a count. He says it's a thousand thousands, which would be a thousand times ten thousand, or ten million. And those that stand before him would be 10,000 times 10,000, which would be 100 million. This view describes to us 110 million angels just around the throne. These are angels that minister to him and angels that stand before him. Now, we're going to take this at what it says. Here are these 110 million angels. But, you know, that's kind of hard to get your hands around exactly what that means. 110 million, how many is that? Let's look at another passage that gives us a very similar description. Revelation, the fifth chapter, verse 11. Then I looked, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them 
was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. At least this number, 200 million, at least that could be more. 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands is the same way of saying the same thing. Whatever the case, that at least the revelator saw 200 million angels. But again, 200 million, what is that? If we were going to describe what 200 million is, how would we describe it? Well, here would be one way. A mass of people standing as close as they can, shoulder to shoulder, front to back, one mile wide, stretching from downtown Dallas to here. I calculated this, by the way. I got my math out, and I figured each person takes up so many square feet and so many square feet in a mile in length and all that, and calculated it. Think about that. From downtown Dallas to here, one mile wide ribbon of humanity of people standing as close as they can. That's about 200 million. Give or take people like me that take a little more space. (laughs) That's what John the Revelator saw just at the throne. And now, what are they doing? These 200 million are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What a scene. This scene is portrayed for you and I to demonstrate the greatness of Christ. The mighty power and the awesomeness of Christ our Savior. That Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. 200 million just begin to sing His praises. That's just those. You can't count them. Can't count them all. How could God create an innumerable number? I don't know, but he did. The scriptures say there are innumerable, can't count them, angels. Angels have names. Okay, now I had trouble naming two kids. (laughs) We've got to name 200 million angels, and that's just the ones in heaven. Angels have names. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? This is the angel that wrestled with Jacob. The verse we read earlier, the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Let me give you a sense of what the Hebrew language is saying here. The verbiage is carrying with it the idea that the name is too great for these men to understand. When it says, My name is wonderful, it doesn't mean, it's not saying his name is literally wonderful. What he's saying is the utterance of my name is too wonderful for you. Think about maybe the name of a great person. Maybe if Abraham Lincoln all of a sudden walked in here, you know, people would say, wow, Abraham Lincoln. That's wonderful. He's just a man, a sinful man. Can you imagine an angelic being that is so mighty and powerful and perfect that just the utterance of its name is too wonderful? Saturday night we'll answer the question. Why was the angel that the angel had, why do you care? Why is it important to you to know my name? Why do you want to know my name? Kind of like me asking maybe the president, why did you call me to the White House? Why do you want to know my name? That's the essence of what the angels are saying in those two verses. Why do you want to know about me? There's a lesson in this for us that we'll hopefully learn Saturday night. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Michael was one of the angels. Literally means me of God. E-L is God. Daniel chapter 8, verse 16. Gabriel, which means a valiant man of God. Revelations chapter 2, verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone and the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. He's describing a time when God will assign new names to everybody, to all the saved. He'll give them new names that nobody will know except him who receives it. Hebrews, the first chapter, verse 4, describing Jesus Christ, he says, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Wow. 
An angel's name is too wonderful for me to comprehend, for me to say, and Christ has a more excellent name than they do. You and I call him Jesus. That was his Hebrew name. The Greeks call him Christos, means the anointed one. The Jews call him Meshua, Messiah. Um, you go in the Far East, they have names. Basically, they're all titles. All the terms that we use for the anointed one, the Christ, are titles. Except for his earthly name, Jesus. I believe he has a name that is yet to be revealed to us. I think the book of Revelations bear that out. We know him as his, his, his name of his father, that his father and father, mother gave him Jesus. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, the anointed one, all the different languages that describe that, whether it's Messiah or Christ. But he has a name that is above every name, a name that he received because he is the son of the creator of this universe, the son of God. By inheritance, he has obtained a more excellent name than the angels. If angels have names that are too wonderful for us, how wonderful is the name of Christ? The world of angels has an authority structure. This is actually what got me started into this study. Somebody asked a question, do angels have bosses and how does it work? Are they organized or is it just a bunch of angels, you know? And so I began to study that. And right away I realized that angels do have an authority structure. They're very organized in their organization. The scriptures don't go into a lot of detail, but there's enough information to give us some, a general idea. And I start by showing that God is a God of organization. Obviously God, the creator of the universe, the omniscient one, the omnipotent, the all-knowing one, Christ his son, now has all is under his power except the one who, as uh, 1 Corinthians 15 describes, that gave him that. The Holy Spirit was sent to the world to bear witness of Christ. So these three are, if you will, the top of the food chain, the highest of all. Just down from that then are angels. And then just below angels are man, is man. You know, we were created a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. So we're there close to the angels, but not over. And this is sort of a, a reign of authority that God has given. And if you think about within the realm of mankind, God has ordained that there be governments, governments of men. He ordained that, that there be presidents and Congress and that, that men uh, group themselves into social organizations for the betterment of, of society and call governments, Romans 13. God has ordained that within mankind in the church there is order. Elders and deacons in the local church. Apostles in the New Testament church. Evangelists working throughout the universal church. God has ordained that. That there be teachers, you see. God has ordained in the home that it be orderly. That there be the husband, the head of the wife. That there be the wife, the guide of the home. That there be children who are subject to the family. In everything, God has ordered. When Christ fed the 5,000, he told them to sit down by ranks. Orderly. He didn't just have a big chaos out there. He did it orderly. In 1 Corinthians 14, when, God, when uh, the Apostle Paul described the assembly, he said, do it decently and in order. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of order. Just look at the universe, how well balanced it is, how perfect his creation is. God is a God of order. Why would we think that the angels are not organized? Why would we even draw that conclusion? My first assumption would be that the angels are ordered and that there is an order of authority in it, just like all the rest of God's creation. Well, with that assumption, let's just look into it. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Michael, one of the chief princes. Two or three things we see from that. First of all, one of indicates there are others. So there are an order of angels called chief princes. Michael's one of them. Don't know how many there are. He's one of them. Chief princes indicate that there are princes. Because you can't have chiefs unless they have somebody to be chiefs over. The terminology here indicates that you've got one of these chief princes. There's a group of them. Below that you would have princes. Now princes are not the everyday common ordinary man in the language that was used here. So princes must also be over others. So this phrase right here alone indicates at least three levels. <clears throat> chief princes, princes, and those which princes reign over. And there are more than one chief prince. There are chief one of chief princes, you see. So already just in Daniel 10, we see a grouping or an ordering of angels. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. With the voice of an archangel. The word archangel means just exactly like it sounds, an ark. An angel over other angels. Just like you have an archway and a door. 
It's that arch that's over that door. Well, now here's one described as an arch or archangel. He's over other angels. So either this is one of the rankings that's described in the earlier verse or another ranking of angels where there's some angels over other angels. Romans 8th chapter verse 38. Now we'll look at this deal about principalities and powers. We'll read the verse again. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he mentions angels. We might think of those as rank and file, angels. And along with those, he mentions somebody called principalities and powers. Now let me tell you about the word principalities and powers. Principalities and powers are words that are in the Greek language used for various rules of government. Principality would be sort of like a county sheriff, maybe. Power would be like a, rather, rather a power is like a county sheriff in the Greek world. Principality is more like a, a regional governor, something like that. So somebody says, whoa, he's not talking about angels, are he's talking about governments of man. Well, let's see if he is. Let's look at the next verse, Ephesians 3 and 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. See there, the church is responsible for teaching the gospel to the various governments of man. Is it? Are the governments of man in spiritual places? Because that's where these principalities and powers are. They're in heavenly places. I think we've got the best government in the world, and I would not describe it as spiritual. I wouldn't describe it as being in a spiritual place. But let's just go on to the next verse. Ephesians, the sixth chapter, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But what do we wrestle against, Paul? We wrestle against the governments of man. No. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Exact same phraseology is used in these other verses. He's describing angelic beings, and in this case, he's describing angelic beings that have fallen, that are working for Satan. You know what he describes our battle against sin as? Our battle against sin is exactly this. When you're trying to resist to tell a lie, Satan has angels that are trying to move you to tell a lie. That's the battle we're fighting. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In the spiritual realm, there are angels of Satan that are seeking to tempt you to sin. And that's our battle. In this case, they're called principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. Spiritual host. The phrase principalities and powers in the New Testament is describing spiritual beings, not flesh and blood. And so I look at these other verses, principalities and powers, talking about different kinds of angels, and sometimes talking about angels that fell. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Colossians 2, 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus Christ disarming the power of these in the, in, through the gospel. Another kind of ranking of angel, if you will, sons of God. A lot of discussion about this. And I've kind of wavered on this until just about two years ago. I've come to what I believe is a conclusionless matter. People read the book of Job, chapter 38, chapter 1, chapter 2, and say sons of God. Those are angels. And I always wondered, how do I know that those are angels and not just men? Let's look at Job 38, verse 7. When the, sun, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Let's put it in context. Job had been asking all these cutting questions. Why is this happening to me? I didn't do anything wrong. All his friends come over and said, Job, you did something wrong. Job said, I didn't do anything wrong. And his friends said, Job, you're lying to us. Job said, no, I didn't do anything. I've always done the right thing. I don't deserve this. And his friends said, okay, you're really messed up now. <laughs> Because we know you did something or you wouldn't deserve all this. After this conversation was over with, God appeared to Job and his friends in a whirlwind. And God basically, his discussion was something like this. There are a lot of things, guys, that you don't know and that you don't understand and you weren't there. You can't possibly know what's going on behind the scene. I'll give you an example. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I stretched the line upon it? Where were you when I collected the waters together? Where were you when I created the Leviathan? Where were you when I created the behemoth? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Where were you when the morning stars sang together? Job, where were you? 
when the sons of God shouted for joy. This verse is describing the creation of the stars. Job, where were you when I created the stars? I'll tell you where Job was. He wasn't created yet, and neither was Adam. Neither was any man. No man was created yet. Where were you when I created the universe is basically the point of that context. Read the context. Where were you when the sons of God shouted for joy? You know what happened when God created the stars? The massive glory of the universe that we look at at night. You know what happened? There is a ranking or kind of angel called the sons of God. They sang a song. They sang a song and shouted for joy at the awesome creation of the universe. Where were you, Job? Where were you, Mike? It kind of puts us in context a little bit. And, it, and it was, the point was to put Job in context. There is a grouping of angels that the scriptures refer to as the sons of God. And I believe that's who was, he's talking about in Job chapter 1 when he said these sons of God came together to present themselves before the Lord. Satan was also there. Being a fallen angelic being, it possible for him to be there. Chapter 2, the same thing happened again. I believe that the scriptures bear out that at least in some of the verses describing sons of God, it's describing angelic beings because in Job chapter 38, man wasn't created yet in his description. But there are also seraphim. Isaiah, the sixth chapter, verse two, describes seraphim. We sing a song, holy, 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 seraphim, cherubim. You ever wonder what that is? The word seraph, seraphim is plural. The, the, the single word, singular word is seraph. Seraph means burning, literally means burning. When the children of Israel were escaping out of Egypt and the, the serpents were released and they bit them, you know, and, and, because, and then Moses had to raise up the brass serpent, the bite of that serpent and the name of that serpent was described as seraph because it had such a burning bite. So the word seraph is used to describe it. When Isaiah looked into heaven and saw these angels and the brilliance of their glory and the fact that they were as if they were on fire, he described them as seraph or seraphim because there were four of them, burning angels. Lord willing, we'll talk about these burning angels Sunday night. That's my plan right now. There are also cherubim. The word cherub, how you say it, is the basic Aramaic word for angel. Right now, you and I talk about angels, we say angel. You go over to Iraq right now, and you go mix out in the populace and ask them about angels, you would use the word kerub. There are actually churches of the seven angels over there. I mean, there's all kinds of religions other than the Muslim religion that worship different kinds of angels, and they, call, they refer to them as kerub. It's a basic word for angel. In the scriptures, kerub or cherub or cherubim, which is the plural, is talking about a certain kind of angel. We'll talk about those angels, Lord willing, Saturday night. It's a very interesting study, the study of the, of the cherubim. Whatever the case, you can see through these verses, there's a host of different kinds of angels. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Do not forget that all of these angels, the great vast host of these different kinds of angels, were created for him and through him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above, not just above, far above all principality and power and might, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. First Peter three twenty two. who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Whatever we say about the greatness of angels, the wonderful seraphim that fly above the throne of God, the mighty cherub that guarded the garden of Eden, the powerful angel that stood before Balaam, the angel that reaped through Jerusalem when David numbered the people, the angel that wrestled with Jacob, the angels that quietly appeared to Elisha. Whatever we say about all of the angels of God's creation, Christ is far above them all. They are all subject to him at the right hand of God. Study of angels glorifies Jesus Christ, the creator of all. If I were going to list them, that's how I would list them. The only rationale I have behind that is basically two things. Number one, the order that they're usually listed in in the scriptures. And number two, when they are shown in the throne of God, the proximity to God's throne that they're shown. Past that, the scriptures really don't tell us a whole lot 
about how they fall into these rankings. Obviously, some are over others. God has ordered them in some kind of format, but we really don't know what that is. Someday we might. Whatever they are, they are all subject to the will of the one who died for you and I, Jesus Christ. If you need the help of the church this evening in any way, if you'd like to become a member of that body that is the innumerable company of angels, if you'd like to have your sins washed away by the one whom all angels are subject to, if you'd like to become a member of the body of Christ, your sins to be washed away, we can help you this evening by obeying him in baptism, confession of your faith, repentance, be buried with him in baptism, come forth to be a brother or sister of the mighty company of angels in our service to our Lord. We need the help of the church this evening through prayer. We invite you to come while we sing the invitation song that's been selected.